You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers and the paths they've taken to help shape our everyday lives. Hello and welcome back. I'm Dr. Humera Iqbal, and I'm an Associate Professor of Psychology at the Social Research Institute here at the IOE. Today, it's great to have Dr. Victoria Shonmi with us, who is a lecturer in education based at the Department of Education, Practice and Society. Some of the courses Victoria leads include Sociology and Race, Black Feminist Theory and Critical Whiteness Studies. She is also actively involved in the university and college union. Victoria's research focuses on two key related themes, gender, education, leadership and empowerment. And secondly, young black women's experiences of education in the context of their well-being. She is truly a global scholar in that as well as research based in the UK, Victoria has worked with colleagues in North America, Brazil, Pakistan, China, Azerbaijan, Ireland, Germany, South Africa, and the Caribbean. One of the projects which I'm fascinated to hear more about today on her work on gender and leadership in higher education in Pakistan. I'm equally keen to hear about her work on black girls and young women's experiences of education in British classrooms. I hope you enjoy our chat. Well, Victoria, there's so much I want to ask you, but let's start right at the beginning. So what made you want to study education and what attracted you to higher education? Okay, I don't think it was, I mean, I suppose I've always been interested in education from a young person, really. So, and it wasn't directly education. I was interested in developing people. Um, So that's, I think that's the important part for me. So I didn't train to be a traditional teacher. I was very much interested in how people learned in, in all different contexts. So I think that was important for me. I didn't really think about higher education that much. I grew up in Somerset, so I'm a Somerset person. And, you know, kind of half my childhood was in Somerset from the age of six months. It started off in Devon, then Somerset. And I was adopted by German Jewish parents who happened to be very upper class. And so we lived in very large rambling houses. And I mentioned that because I would say that my mother, who I say is my mother, was Jewish and German, was very much a pioneer. And she was very much a pioneer in what she did. So I think I learned from her because I I remember in one of the houses we lived in, in the village, I'd set up, I suppose, an activity club, one would call it now, for young people. I must have been about five or six myself. But I was, I really wanted to invite people who perhaps didn't have as much as us or didn't live in a house like ours. And they used to come to my house once a week and we'd and do this club, this activity club, which I was organizing. And that was from, like I said, five or six years of age. So I think that inspired me. I was, I was very, very interested in how people learn from different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. What kind of activities did you do at the club? Well, we did things like I was a big stamp collector, so I did stamp collecting, and um, we did painting and all things which children would do. But it was yeah, it was just fun really, and we played games because we had a big garden and everything else. We did lots of games with that as well. 
That's fantastic. So you've always had this inner drive to bring people together and and try and see how, what would you say, work together to kind of improve or or grow, I guess. I guess it it ties up to your work on leadership, perhaps, and um, educational leadership. And I wonder, how does one teach about leadership and how, how does one learn about leadership? The particular part I'm I'm very interested in is around identity and leadership. And so what does that translate into? I'm very passionate and very interested in whether one's identity impacts in the way you lead. And so I did a, a, a large piece of research because I was so inspired about, you know, what does happen when you're a leader? And I think that happened from my experience of being at the institute in the in a department where I was brought in as as one of the leaders and my the experience didn't unpack in the way it should have done or it was expected to and so it really inspired me to think how does one's identity impact in the way one leads and it is all to do with expectations so if you're a white male leader and you're destined for leadership, most people would you know, be comfortable with the fact that it's a white male leader and they're not going to really, they're not going to push against it. However, if, if, if a, a black female turns up who they may have, the, the person, the, the team may have um, preconceived ideas what this leader is going to be based on their own biases, then you have a different set of challenges to deal with. And it is about this notion of identity, your one's own identity and also the identity of the team you're leading. So I'm fascinated by by that. Teaching of leadership, well, it starts with what is a leader and how does that transpire? And I've done that. I was doing some really interesting work in Brazil where I wanted to ask the women in the favelas about leadership. And when we talked about that, they really didn't know what I meant. And of course, it's translation as well, because it's Portuguese. But then I went back and stripped it right back and looked at, okay, so what are you doing? What, what type of things do you do in the community? And it was really looking at, so, okay, you're women leaders. You are leading a whole range of different things within the community. Fascinating. I mean, I guess it, it points to the fact, as you say, that across cultures, how we understand what a leader kind of is and the qualities of a leader varies. And, you know, it also makes me think of, you know, talking about your research in Brazil, you have done kind of immense amounts of kind of international and global scholarship. And what what has your experience of being an international visiting uh, scholar been like? And some of the things you were saying about leadership and um, kind of identity, did they tie into your experiences um, internationally? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been to some really, really out-of-way places. So I went backwards and forwards to Pakistan for four years. Really, I went to Lahore, I went to Mari, I went to Walpindi, all different places in Pakistan. And, and I remember going to go there, and I was not nervous at all about going there. I really was excited. And a colleague of mine, Saida, Saida Shah, who's at Leicester University, wanted me to be part of the project. And it was just, it's an experience which I would, I relish all the time. And I still go back to Pakistan. They asked me to do different work with them, keynotes and everything else. What was it like? Well, I was very upfront because, you know, there wasn't many people looking like me in Pakistan. And they, any kind of people which were different were white. 
So for me to be a black female mm-hmm. in Pakistan with colleagues which are female, it was it was really endearing. Endearing and we we got we we really kind of spoke about it a lot openly and looked at the the how we shared experiences across being Asian and being black and what did that mean? And it was and it was very healthy to do that in Pakistan and talk about leadership. And it was a leader it was around leadership and gender within higher education. We looked at four universities out there. Fascinating. Disclosure, I, I lived in Pakistan for, for many years. So it's really wonderful that you've done all of this amazing research in Pakistan. Did you find that, I guess, gender is a really interesting topic in Pakistan because there is a degree of gender inequality in that it is kind of a predominantly quite a, a kind of male-driven society uh, in a sense. Did you did you find challenges around in your findings around leadership and, and, and gender related to, to kind of those kind of structural inequalities? I would say that one thing about women in Pakistan, which I was working with, and, and you, you also have to acknowledge that I was working with very middle-class women because we're in the university sector, is that the difference between what they had and what we had is, I mean, the challenges they face as a woman within higher education is the same as, is, is, is very similar to ours. However, what's really positive is that they have a lot of help. So they would have somebody who could help them with the children, help with the cooking, help with driving if they required, all that type of stuff. Whereas we over here, we do everything ourselves. That's a big difference, you know, the childcare and all that kind of stuff as well. And also the women which I was very much involved with, whether it was students or whether it was um, faculty, they were they were their own people. There was not this sense that which is preconceived by what the media does spend a lot of time on about how women which are Muslim are so oppressed. We didn't didn't see that. I mean, certain parts of the country, of course, certain parts of the country were more adhered towards that. But then that's the same in the West. It's the same in England. It's the same in Germany. Certain parts of, you know, European countries are also very narrow viewed in the country. We have that in the United Kingdom. So for me, being in Pakistan, which is four times the size of the United Kingdom, I was able to really look at the, the, the fact that this is a vast variety of people within Pakistan. And I also learned about the Quran, which I was very excited about, and not hear, not learning about it through the filter, mm. but really talking to people about everyday life. And it was, it was fascinating. Wow. It's, it's, it's really great that you did this work. And actually, it sounds like kind of all of this, this travel and this international, I guess, all of the work you've done internationally, it must have had an impact on, on how you do research as a whole. And, and it, would you like to kind of comment on that? Yeah. I mean, another part, I suppose, would be I was in Azerbaijan. And Azerbaijan is a mixture of a secular and a Muslim community but also links very much to Turkey. What's helped to strengthen my research is that I'm, I am very much a qualitative researcher. I do do mixed methods, but I'm very interested in voice and I'm very interested in storying. So w- being able to travel mm-hmm. and be part of different women in different contacts, contexts has really has been very, very helpful. I would say that I've recently come across uh, Lawrence Lightfoot's work on uh, on um, portraiture, which is looking at portraits, which translates stories in, into portrait, and that's fascinating. So you asked me the question, how has it helped? I think it's really 
grounded my work because I'm also a grounded theory person as well. So grounded theory, and it justifies me looking at developing the theory from grassroots and upwards as against coming down with a theory. So I am very passionate about that. And that really, that really helps me and builds on what I do. Mm-hmm. So I, I, thanks for clarifying, you know, for kind of explaining what grounded theory is for those. So really kind of starting from scratch and, and developing ideas. It's so interesting to hear your story and, you know, right at the start, you know, talking about how your mother and your kind of experiences of thinking about identity. I guess it, it must have helped as well, uh, being able to identify with different cultures, I guess, code switch uh, and switch between different ideas, relate to people on different levels. You talked about, going back to Pakistan again, I guess um, one of the things that hits me there is thinking about the idea of class, social class, because that's quite a big, the women that you kind of spoke to, I guess class would have been quite an important factor between uh, women from a kind of middle class or upper social class and and kind of more working class women in Pakistan. And it it ties on to the next series of questions around intersectionality I want to ask. And you use intersectionality in your work quite a lot. And intersectionality is a term that I feel like it's being used very loosely at the moment in in many places. But I I wanted to know what you mean by intersectionality. How do you use this concept? Again, a a helpful way of starting off on intersectionality. I remember when I sat down, I'm quite assertive, I suppose, and confident. And and some people find that very difficult because, you know, when they describe a a black woman, they're describing somebody, they they think that's... confidence is aggressive and you know when they when they describe an Asian woman they think oh they're they're more kind of subversive you know kind of more kind of quieter um which is all not true it's all nonsense um then when it comes to white it's kind of oh they're confident Mm. so you know you've got all these different things so I I did women's studies as a Mm. master's and um uh, one of the things we were battling, I did it at the Institute, I did my doctorate at Sheffield but um one of the things we I, I battled with a lot was being accepted as a woman. And um, we talked about, we used to talk about women's studies, mm-hmm. but it was all about white women. And bringing in the voices of black women was very, very difficult because mm-hmm. that, that wasn't, there wasn't um, a discussion around that. It was, well, race is over here and women are over here. But I, hang on a moment, I'm a black woman. So for me, it's really looking at the, the structural and oppression around some equality characteristics. So you hear people talking about intersectionality in one sentence and not actually unpacking it. Intersectionality is a talking about, in fact, the reason why race and gender fits in with that is because when you look at gender, it is around those policy procedures and structural inequalities within organizations and society. And the same thing with race. So when you bring the two together, a woman which is black has got double barrel, you know, double concepts of complexity of trouble, basically. And so, and then of course, then you add class to it as well. And that's what I mean by an inter, is an intersectional, is an intersect where you take it and you look at what's the core in that core is an intersectional aspect of trying to understand what's happening. Now, I remember talking to Michael Arthur some time ago. And again, I was bold. I went and had a meeting with him in his office. And he was talking to me about all the different things he'd done for women. And we were talking about it. So I sat there listening. And I said, OK, that's really interesting. So what about, what are you doing for black women? He said, oh, that's an interesting question. I said, yes. You've got to understand the intersectional aspect of gender. 
You can't feel that you're doing all this stuff for women, but what are you actually doing for women which look like me? And they said that no one had ever said that to him. So I think it's being able to talk about it, but not use it as like the, the, the overuse of the word like diversity, which means everything. I think we have to be clear when we're working with research, when we're working with students, when we're using the term intersectional, we're using it in the context of what's happened and why we need to use it to describe issues around gender. I'm glad you said that because, you know, you're right. Words like diversity have become so diluted. And I don't know, everywhere I look and turn, I see the word intersectional being used at the moment. But, you know, the word has meaning and it has context. And I I kind of really relate to what you just said and how you described uh, the importance of being careful with the use of the term. I have a question. I was reading about your search and, and I want to know what the Black Girls Club is. Yeah, thank you. I am really, really, really passionate about Black Girls. My first degree, when I first came to London, I was, I was bushy-eyed. I worked in Scotland as well, so I've kind of been all over the country. But um, I remember being so bushy-eyed, thinking, oh, my God, there's so many black people. I've never never seen so many because I lived in Somerset and, and Kent and never saw black people before in my life. And so and I, I remember getting a job in one of the colleges, which was, I didn't realise it was rather a posh college, but there was four sites, and one of the sites was in Battersea. And on the course, one of the courses, there was just a whole range of just black students and in the college. And um, people didn't want to talk about these students. So I did I did a piece of research on the voices of black girls in further education. And I wanted to know what was happening. And that's continued. Now, doing the work in schools, again, um, I'm sorry I'm giving you a, a backdrop. I just have to give you a tiny backdrop. I apologize. So I wanted to do, I was very interested in mental health and well-being of young women. And I was asking questions about it, but there was no research done on black girls. There was research done on black boys and black men and migrant women, but not black girls. So put that to one side. So I then went to some schools and said, look, I really wanted to look at what's going on with your black girls. I'm really interested in this because I think it has an impact on how they're doing entertainment. So I got involved with a couple of schools and one of the school, well, both schools, I, I was doing focus groups and um, one of the schools I was meeting every single week and they said, you know, let's, you know, let's have a name for this. I said, what would you like to call it? And one girl came up with a name called the Black Girls Club. And so that's what we called it. It was a club. And I realized more and more that black girls do not have the space to talk about themselves at all because you look at a young black girl at the age of, I've got a 15 year old. If you look at a, a young girl who's 15 or when she's 10, black young girls do not look, they only have a small window of being little black girls. Whereas white girls have a longer period of looking like they're little girls. Also Asian girls, they look like, you know, in the majority, they would look, they look like a small little girl. Black girls don't have that luxury. They are seen as women. They're sexualized beings. And all of this stuff is what, you know, they, we were talking about all different things within the Black Girls Club. We you know how the boys would look at them or talk to them, how society sees them. Some of the girls were talking about, you know, uh, being identified as prostitutes coming home from school because men feel that they are, you know, young girls, which to them are women. And these are 12 or 13, 14 year olds. So that's how it came about as a black girls club. It was fascinating. I'm still doing more stuff with schools. 
And I've and the NEU, which is the National Education Union for Teachers, has asked me to do some more stuff as well. So it, it is something I'm interested in in relation to the experience of our girls and what's going on. It's, it's really, really important research. And, and actually, I'm glad you spoke about teachers because I, I wondered... In your research, have in when you were t- talking um, to the, to the girls and the the Black Girls Club, did any of them talk about how teachers behaved with them, or was there any findings around differences between how teachers behaved with girls from different races and ethnicities? Very much so. I mean, there's lots of research besides my research on this, but one of the things. I will say, but there's lots of research on this particular finding, is that they saw them as loud, loud black girls. Lots of work on that, like Debbie Weeks' work. But also um, identity. So the, Some of the girls would be talking about they need to be on the whiter side of black. And that was really significant because at the same time I was going in with the Black Girls Club and, and, and talking to the girls and we were talking about things, I was also doing the research on black women which were BME, black and minority ethnic. And so mostly they were Asian and they were African or African-Caribbean women, mm-hmm. right? And the women were senior leaders across the whole of the UK. I had 160 and including FTSE 100. So these very powerful women, which I was dealing with. What they were saying was that they needed to bleach their identity to get up and on into the organization. So that's these women which are in leadership positions. Then you look at the young girls, which are only a couple of years ago, who were 14 years of age, 15 years of age, saying similar, which is we want to, we think, this is some of them, you need to be the whiter side of black to be considered within school. That's what some of the girls were saying. They also talked about being popular girls. Of course, I didn't know what popular girls was. I mean, what's a popular girl? I'm just a posh girl. What is a popular girl? I didn't know what this meant. So I came home to the girls, my daughters, and even my au pair and said, <laughs> what do you mean by popular girl? What's that? And my au pair was from Germany. She understood popular girls. My daughters talked about popular girls. I didn't know what popular girls was. But it wasn't, I thought it was being popular, but it wasn't it was being popular because it meant that they're popular doing things which perhaps girls didn't need to do at that particular age, and they became popular. Or they could be popular because they were bright and doing other things, if that makes sense. So it's popular. So all these things. So there was a crossover between looking at what the leadership was in that research and looking at what the girls were doing here. So the Black Girls Club was fascinating. I've just been asked by one of the private schools to do some work with their girls because it was also turned into... I looked at empowerment, identity, how it then linked into aspirations. All that type of stuff is what I was doing with these young girls. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually really sad to hear that, you know, across the generations, there was a similar message about kind of what you, you said, bleaching your identity or kind of shifting your identity to uh, satisfy others. And, and it also makes me think about what you said earlier about if you're a black a woman or if you're a woman of color and you speak out you're you're told you're bossy you're assertive it's just yes i i you know it's things really need to change they really do in terms of kind of this this club and and also working with the young girls did you find mentorship or have you done any work around mentorship and mentoring um has this found to be kind of an effective way of i guess building confidence in young black girls or are there any findings around what recommendations did you make from your research 
I was one of the people who set up one of the first mentoring schemes in the UK. And I set it up. It was called Mentoring for Success. I set it up with another person who's in Nottingham, a very good close friend of mine, Lisa. So we did mentoring with them. With apprenticeships, but it was a it was apprenticeships way back in late late nineties for for children for young people which were going into local authorities on apprenticeships. That was number one. Number two, I set up a, a scheme with Thomas Coram, and it was when they first opened their building. I was in there with young people which were coming from uh, challenging backgrounds, and I set up this interactive program for young people which were not at school, had difficult experiences, which also had a, a mentoring aspect to it for them. So one, it was a it was an education program, which I, I led and designed. And two, there was a mentoring aspect to it as well. So I trained, I developed a training program for the mentors and I developed a mentors. And it was fascinating for those young people. For schools, I've done it for young girls, which has been good. And I've also done it for senior people as well. So mentoring, I love, but I love actually coaching. I think coaching is better for young people. And I think coaching is better for most people now because I think it's a different type. Of mm-hmm. Can you tell us the difference? What's the difference between what mentoring and coaching? Like, and how, how does it help um, y- young women, uh, young, young women in general and young black women in particular? Okay. So I suppose I would say that mentoring is more of a, mentoring is more of a long-term relationship. And it can be, you know, generational, whatever way you want, but it's more of a long-term relationship, long-term commitment with the person. Whereas the the coaching is very much action-based. And it's really kind of, so if I say to you, Amira, okay, you want, you know, what can we do? I'm stuck. I need to move on to the next stage. So we would look at, okay, so what is it? What do you think are the things we need to, what you need to work on to be able to get to A, B, C, and D? And we would then, with you, draw out how you need to do those together. And it would be short term. It could be six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, something like that. It's short term. Whereas a mentoring would be really mentoring with somebody with experience, somebody who could see, um, okay, this is, this is what we need to do. It was a longer kind of push into the whole area. Um, so, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's quite good if you've got young people which need or anybody who needs that longer process of mentoring you, honing you, develop where you want to be. But um, I'm a, I'm very much a coach person. I like I like coaching. I'm, I'm an executive coach. I like coaching. I think it's good. You can see what needs to be done, and it's more action, and it's and it's you know it's done, dun, 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 finished. And then you might need a coach another time, but you've you've finished it. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's great to hear about, you know, the kind of the tangible kind of um, work and kind of the the outputs in the sense that, you know, this is work that can help improve and make change. Because I guess this and um, the podcast is, is called Research for the Real World. And we try to think about, um, I guess, as academics, as researchers, we try to do research um, that will be able to foster change. And, and one of one of the things is recommendations. So it's, it's really, you know, it's wonderful to hear about this coaching work that you've done. Um, and it sounds like it's been very kind of efficient and helpful in, in kind of in, in, in working with with young women. Um, just to, to kind of end this kind of t- talking about um, y- all of the work you've done and, and black girls and young women, um, have you found that the UK is different from other countries in terms of how well, um, you know, uh, black girls are doing? Um, do you have any 
kind of reflections or have you done any work on this? I, I do actually. I mean, I, I'm in Germany a lot. And when I'm in Germany, I teach, I do, I run three modules and I've also done a lot of speaking across different parts of Germany. And I always meet one or two black girls. Most of the time they're mixed race in Germany and they're just boiled over by the fact that I'm there, number one. And number two, they talk about their experiences and their experiences are raw. They remind me of my experiences. They're really raw experiences of racism. But at the same time, they are achieving because they're very much high achievers because Germany is a very high achieving country. I think when I think about the US, the US has got some, you know, favorite aspects really when it's dealing with young black girls. But at the same time, I think, I suppose when I think about all of the countries which I've, I've looked at, that the reoccurring aim around black girls is and one of my articles is about that, is the suffering in silence. There's a preconceived idea that black girls are so, so confident that they don't actually need any help. So even though they may be achieving, in theory, more than the boys, at what cost? So when we get to university, when the girls come to university, there's a lot of issues around anxiety, panic attacks, and breakdowns with some of our black girls and also losing of their confidence because they are finding it difficult to kind of to navigate their way around everyday racism because it's the first time they may have seen it in extent when they come to university. So there is those things. When it comes to being the good girls, you've got the good girls who keep their head down and think, yes, all I need to do is do as I'm told, keep my head down and keep moving forward and meritocracy, meritocracy will carry on. But that's a shock across the board for all black girls because, yes, they are women, but they are black women. Being a woman and a black woman and also someone intelligent, that's a danger. It's a danger to white women and it's a danger to black men and the only one which perhaps may be an element of support would be white men. But white women find it really, really a challenge dealing with black women because white women would want, are always the ones which, when you talk about diversity, it's always about white women. And so if they didn't need to share the space with black women, all of a sudden all what they need in their hub has changed because then you've got, oh my goodness, I've got to share that space with another woman. And that woman, do I see her as a woman? You know, going back to Sojourner Jones, do I see her as a woman or do I not see her as a woman? Those things are all what plays out in my book, which is called Managing Everyday Racism Through an Intersectional Lens. It's that stuff I'm teasing out and playing with. Mm. You foresaw my next question, which was actually, you know, <laughs> which is about this book, actually. So really great that you kind of come on to this. And um, I, I really like what you said about making space is, and especially, you know, white women and kind of making space for others. It's hard and it's difficult and it involves sacrifice. And I kind of, I really, what you're saying is really resonate. It really resonates with me. And, you know, it's, it's also, it's across all, I mean, I guess the work on the hierarchy of oppression and all of that's really interesting. But, you know, the idea that black women really do experience challenges, it's also, you know, all of us need to kind of make space and, and some of us need to make more is what I personally think. So your book, Managing Everyday Racism, when can we expect to pick up a copy and 
tell us about some of the other things that we can can read about and learn about in this book. Okay, so there's three things I need to come back on. One is about the black women and and where they're at, and then I come back on the books. Black women are at the bottom of the pay scale. So I'll say that again. Black women at the bottom of the pay scale. Black women are the ones which are absolutely workaholics, yet they're the ones which face the biggest amount of discrimination within higher education, further education, schools. They face so much discrimination. These are the women. I'm not talking about the children or the students. And you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why is that? If you look at UCL and you ask yourself the numbers, how many, not Asian, but how many black women are academics in UCL and how many of them and where are they at in the progression road? And that's a big question which you have to ask yourself. In relation to the books, so I've got a book which is coming up to nearly finish, which is a handbook on handbook, Bloomsbury Handbook in Gender and Leadership, which is pulling 30 different top-notch academics on gender and leadership. So the book is called a hand, uh, Bloomsbury Handbook in Gender and Education and uh, Gender and Leadership and Management. Right, that will be out around about this time next year, because the time it goes to publishing and everything else. The book, which is managing everyday racism through an intersectional lens, that the draft goes to the publisher in November, all being well, and it's a, I'm leading on that. I invited a colleague to be part of it with me as well, and she's great. She's Dr. Carol Tomlin. There's some exciting parts in that book. One of the exciting parts is a chapter called The Tangled Web, and it's really teasing out and having a conversation about terminology. And I'm using metaphors like the big house, like, for example, things which may have been said to me and I'm teasing them out. You know, you don't know what it's like to be black is a, a theme coming out in that chapter because it's when somebody says that to you, they're not talking about visibly black because, of course, I'm visibly black. It's embedded with class and what that means. So there's a whole range of different things in that book, which no one's really touched upon at all. It's going to places where you haven't really, it's going to really touch the thorny issues. Um, even when I look at the big house, but it's about the fact of the, the plantation house and how the plantation house and how that translates into the work life. So if you think about enslaved people who were in the field and enslaved people who came out of the field into the house, and then and in the house, there would be people which were born in the house. So I grew up in the house, if you use that analogy. And then if you let link that into the workplace, so the enslaved people which were uh, which were in the field are the activists of the work. So they're the activists. And then the person which is moved from being enslaved from the field into the house would be two types. It could be the activist, which is a strategist, or the activist, which is a pacifist, you know, somebody who's more passive. And then, of course, the person which grew up in the house, was born in the house, would be the disruptor. And the disruptor would hold hands with the activist, which is out in the, the enslaved person in the field. And so all of this I'm writing about because it's fascinating because you kind of think to yourself, when you get into a workplace, why is it? What's going on here? But you've got all these different players and they are seeing you in different perceptions. 
they think, oh my goodness, you know, Hermione is like this. We can trust her a little bit more because she's, you know, she's in, she's coming out from the field into the house and she's just being whatever she's being. And we can trust her because she's not like that a person who's more of an activist over there who's called or something. So I'm writing about this. It's going to be fascinating. And then the third book, which is also, I've got three books on the go, all going to come out at the same time. The third one is Critical Conversations on Race and Leadership. And that's with, I'm again leading it because my, it's my book. I was commissioned, but I wanted to get a couple of voices. So I've got a couple of voices from colleagues in America. I'm very collaborative and I work, I like to work with others to do stuff. And that's in America. So there's three different books, which are all going to be very, very interesting. So yes. So you are very busy and you have been very busy and gosh, there's a lot. I can't, I'm really looking forward to managing everyday racism. And in fact, all of the books sound brilliant. Coming to the end of our conversation, but it it really kind of ties up recently. And you've mentioned this already at UCL, we had a big town hall called A Conversation About Race at UCL, a lived experience, which you chaired brilliantly. You chaired it brilliantly. It was one of the most widely attended town halls in UCL's history. And it, it was important. And there was a lot of, it was interactive. There was a lot of discussion. I designed it and I facilitated it and I implemented it. It was really great. And actually, some of the kind of you, you asked the question and I hope maybe you can just say the number just so people can hear, because all of the statements you made about black women, it's not it's not statements. They're based on empirical evidence and research and, and data. Um, and you asked, you know, one of the questions that came up was how many black professors do we have at UCL? How many black academics? How many? Um, and, you know, the number is shockingly is, is very low. But I, I want to kind of bring it back to um, education. And one of the changes we can make is as educationalists is by, you know, further making our curriculum, what we teach more inclusive by thinking about global scholars, decolonizing it, if you want to use a decolonizing or liberating some people use. So I wondered, do you have any comments or kind of recommendations or things that you would like to, to say, not just for university teachers, but for any other teachers listening or things that you feel that people should should take into consideration or if you have any kind of recommendations for people's work that should be looked at? I co-chair the Liberating Curriculum group. I co-chair that. And I think one of the things we need to do, and if I, if I think about the Institute of Education, is that we need to go that next step further and really ask ourselves questions about what is it we're doing with our material? What are we doing with our research? And if I look at research, are we doing it because we know if we go and research the other, it helps us up the slippery slope, up the slippery pole, and so we can get there faster because we're researching other? Or are we doing it because we really are interested in what's actually going on? If that makes sense, all right? And I think the other thing is if if we're looking at our work, what impact are we making? So if I do any work, when I was invited to the House of Commons to, to showcase my research, which was on black girls, and I thought it was only going to be 12 people, I don't know, 450 or whatever turned out. That wasn't about the fact because I make a lot of noise about my research because I don't. And that's why I, you know, I'm always where I am. It was about the fact of the impact. That's real impact. Because teachers, policymakers and students were able to look into that and say, that's me. She's talking about me. Dads were saying, this is about, about my daughter. That's, that's what my daughter's like. So it's real. And I think that we as researchers, we as academics have a responsibility, maybe not 10 years ago, maybe not 20 years ago, 
maybe 20 years ago, 10 years ago, it's different. But in this moment of Black Lives Matter and the COVID and Me Too movement, etc., the time has come now. The students aren't going to take bullshit. Excuse my language. They're not interested. They don't care if you think that your research is out there when they feel that it's not impacting them. They need to understand what's the impact. What am I? They want to, there's more and more students which are wanting to come to UCL. I've got about five women who want to do PhDs and they're already in top jobs on leadership. They're interested in the experiences of black women and what's going on. Now, if we can't help them with that because we've got a very fixed way of doing our research, we need to go back and do some learning. And I think we need to really continue to always learn. And I think we also need to be very organic with understanding research methods and really feel that research methods in itself isn't static. It can be moved around. I think as, as academics, whether you're, you're teaching your students or whether you're researching your students, you've got to ask yourself the question, who am I? That's one of the things I do all the time. Who am I? And what is it that I bring to the classroom? What am I bringing? And what, more importantly, are my subjects, are my students bringing into the classroom? And so if you start with them, and it goes back to the first question you asked me, one of the first things about my internationalism, what does that help me? It helps me to know <laughs> or to understand that where my students are coming from, they are all different. They've all got different experiences, and I need to capture that. I am not the expert. They are bringing stuff into the room, and I need to be able to help and work with what they bring in and not feel threatened. I don't feel threatened. I'm empowered by knowing that I've got somebody from Germany or or Japan, or South Korea, or India, or whichever, Nigeria, whichever country, to me, it's empowering. It's incredibly brilliant. I, I completely agree with you. I, and I, I also think that, you know, asking these questions and doing this work, it takes time. It's not easy. And it's labor. It takes work. And you have to do the work. It might, it's, just, it's not just going to change naturally. It's effort that you need to put in. Uh, because, as you say, as you said, our students they're not going to take, they're not going to take it. They want to, to kind of relate to the material and they want to be able to understand how the material can help them understand the world we live in today, not the world we live in, you know, hundreds of years ago, in a sense. Also, when you're in a position, when we're all in positions, look outside the window and ask the question, why isn't that person promoted? Why hasn't that person moved on? Don't think, oh, I don't need to ask. I need to mind my own business. I need to keep my head down. No. You're in a position. People are in positions to ask the question. Why isn't that person moving on? I mean, and people need to ask that question. When you look out the window, don't do the shutters up. Absolutely. I mean, so much to think about. Such a thought-provoking and, you know, fabulous discussion. Thank you so much, Dr. Victoria Shunmi, for, for joining me today. And I have personally learned so much. It's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you. It was great speaking with Victoria. If you'd like to know more about Victoria, you can visit the IOE website and follow her on Twitter at B. Remember, you can catch up on past seasons of Research for the Real World and other podcasts from the IOE. Just search for IOE Podcast. In the show notes, we've also included a quick survey for our listeners to do. Please let us know what you think of the podcast and also have a listen to the Spotify playlist of our guest and podcast team's favourite hits. Just search for Search for the Real World. I'm Himera Iqbal and see you again next time. 
Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 